0: Hello, welcome to Bradcast. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Eamon Chen. I will be one of your hosts today. And I'm joined by my co host, Laura. Hello.
1: Hey, Eamon, how are things?
0: Absolutely. I'm great. Uh, you know, all things considered. And <laughs> our guest today uh, comes from the Department of Biology. She's working on her master's degree right now. We have Emily Hutchinson. Hello, Emily. Hello, how are you? Oh, lovely. Thank you so much for being with us today. And um, uh, so as I understand it, you work with a small furry animal, the 13 lined ground squirrel. Um, And I I looked this up beforehand. Uh, It's apparently also sometimes known as the striped gopher, the leopard ground squirrel, and sometimes a squinny. Oh. Okay, yes.
2: I've definitely heard of the striped gopher before. When we went to trap them in Manitoba, that's where they're from. All the locals call them striped gophers, and so that that's what they call them, but I haven't heard of a skinny before. Squinny. Squinny. Okay, yes. No, I, I can't say I've heard of that one, but sure. it, it makes sense, actually. They, they are small, and they scurry around. <laughs> Could be related to that.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, the photos I saw looked, uh, looked quite adorable, but um, could you describe this, uh, this, this little creature for us? Yeah,
2: they are very sweet. So they're kind of like a bit of a larger chipmunk and they do have 13 lines on their back. We have counted them and they live underground. And so when we went to trap them in Manitoba, uh, it was very sweet because they would poke up their little heads and then we'd see them in the grass and then chase after them. And yeah, they're, they're great little animals. They're, they're very cute, but they are pretty wild. And uh, we have to wear gloves when we handle them because they will bite. So as much as I might want to take one home, I don't think that is a good idea.
0: Okay, sure. And um, so, being an academic program, um, can we ask what is your academic interest in these animals since, as you say, they don't particularly seem to make good pets?
2: Yes, that, that's a great question. So really, the most special thing about them is that they're hibernators. And more particularly, they're obligate hibernators. So they will hibernate every year starting in the fall and then wake up in the spring, regardless of the temperature or the, the conditions. They can have lots of food, it can still be warm, but they'll hibernate anyway. And so that poses like an interesting question. like, How do they do that? What is causing it to happen? And so my research interest and the, research, the interest in our lab is really what's making this happen and is it related to the mitochondria? And so mitochondria are like known as the powerhouse of the cell. Everybody hears that in high school, but uh, the mitochondria are really complicated and different and they're, they're special in the ground squirrels. They'll, they're able to slow down and survive hibernation. And that's really what I'm interested in is how, how are they working and what's going on during the winter.
0: So, could you um, sort of expand a bit when you say obligate um, hibernators? So, you're saying essentially they don't have a choice once, no, you know, it's like no. a certain point in the year, they just like fall over and start snoozing?
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like that, so no, they don't really have a choice. So in the summer, they're uh, programmed to just eat as much food as possible and build up a lot of fat. They turn uh, quite obese by the end of the summer, and then they will start getting sleepy or torpid. And so we'll come in and check on them, and they're starting to get groggy, and they'll they'll curl into a little ball and go to sleep. So there are some other hibernators like chipmunks that we have here um, that are facultative hibernators. So they will only hibernate if they run out of food or if it gets just too cold for them to handle it. And so they'll kind of store food in like a burrow or a nest. And that's why they drain everybody's bird feeders is because they, the more food they have, the less hibernating they have to do. But our squirrels are different. So they don't store food in their burrows at all. They store it within their bodies. And so, yeah, they, they have to hibernate. It's, it's how they are and that's what they do. It's very cool.
1: That's very interesting because I was Googling before and I saw that there's some like we associate hibernation to cold and there are some animals in Australia that hibernate when they have fires. So basically they don't have food and they start hibernate. But like in this case, you're saying that squirrels have like some kind of metabolic signal that will make them hibernate whether they want it or not. (laughs) Like they don't have any choice. They have to hibernate.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And so the the warm thing that you were talking about, the ones in Australia, uh, that that's similar, but it's called estivation. And it can happen also when animals are faced with the challenge of not enough water, too. And so it can be kind of like a heat stress or a water stress. And it's similar. Uh, they go into like they decrease their metabolic rate and they, they go a bit torpid and sleepy, but it's not exactly the same. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's really cool. It's very fascinating.
0: Uh- I mean, I guess it makes sense, but I never really thought about it before the um, the first part in hibernation. Iber is is means winter. Yes.
2: Yep. Yeah, you got so, it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. And so, what makes you suspect that, um, like, the mitochondria has something to do with this process in the ground squirrels?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So it is. It's because the mitochondria generate uh, ATP for the cells. So they convert food energy into a, a molecule called ATP that other chemical reactions uh, use to progress. And so it's kind of a, the energy currency for the body. And mitochondria will produce that. And so they'll consume oxygen and they'll use up the food molecules to create energy in that sense. And so when you're active and running around, your mitochondria are working really hard, your muscle cells are using a lot of ATP. But then in the winter for these hibernating animals, all of those processes slow down and it all comes back to the mitochondria. So the mitochondria uh, get slow, they stop using as much, as much oxygen and everything slows down because of that. So they're kind of like the root of the, of the slowness that happens, they, they're the first step into slowing things down. Mm-hmm.
1: So you did Um, mention that uh, hibernation uh, has several stages. Could you walk us through hibernation a little bit?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there are two different kind of phases of hibernation. There's one that we call torpor. And that's what people usually think of when they think of hibernation. So that is when body temperature drops really, really low. For these animals that we look at, uh, it can drop as low as 4 degrees Celsius, which would kill a human and many other animals if they got that low. And then, so they'll stay low like that, low and sleepy and torpid for about two weeks, depending on the individual, but then they will wake up and they'll arouse into a state called interbout euthermia or IBE. And that's when their metabolic rate and their body temperature will return to what it is in the summer. And then they'll stay in that stage for a couple hours, maybe six to 12 hours, and then they'll go back down into torpor. And so hibernation is actually a cycle. And so they'll be sleeping for a while and then arouse into IBE and then go back into torpor all throughout the winter. And the cause of that is not really known. We we aren't sure why they arouse every so often. You would think that uh, they would just stay torpid because it costs energy to warm themselves up. Most of their their, uh, energetic cost in hibernation is warming themselves up over and over a couple of times every month. And so we don't know why they do that, but but that's what they do. And they need to do it. Every animal that experiences hibernation has these cycles. And so it's, it's very important, but not well understood.
0: Wow, that's really neat um so in, in ibe you, you said they're in a state of arousal does that mean they actually wake up or are they still sort of asleep during that period
2: yeah that, that- good they do wake up so when we come and check on them if they're in ib they are awake and alert and they're looking around if we pick them up they would behave just as a summer squirrel would they would try and run away and they'll do that pretty quickly but they do sometimes spend a lot of that time asleep and so they'll be warm and their brains will be active and everything but they'll spend some of it asleep they don't eat or uh, like do anything that they would normally do so it's not sure they're not doing it to eat because they they've already stored enough fat in their body so we don't know what they're doing. It's probably some internal process, maybe uh, like cleaning up, I don't know, infections that they might've gotten or taking care of reactive oxygen species that might've built up perhaps in torpor. It's, it's not really clear what causes it.
1: So for your specific project, uh, you said that you are interested on the mitochondria. Um, could you uh, tell us what's the process that you're interested about
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm looking specifically at the electron transport system. So mitochondria work by having a couple of proteins in the mitochondrial membrane that pass electrons from one to the other, and they generate energy in this way, kind of like an electrical circuit. And so there are five different protein complexes that Uh, pass the electrons from one to the other. And there's also different uh, carriers that do that too. And so I'm interested in how they associate with one another because if the proteins are closer together, if they form a super complex, then it might be easier for them to pass the electrons from one to another in a more efficient way. It's kind of like the idea of passing your friend Uh, a cookie or something if they're sitting right next to you as opposed to throwing it across the room and having them catch it. If I knew more about football, I could definitely find a football analogy for that, like throwing it across the entire field or just passing it to your buddy who's right beside you. And so I'm on a show or I'm interested in finding out uh, what the protein complexes are doing and specifically if their interactions are different during torpor, during IBE, and during the summer. I expect that maybe there's going to be more protein interactions during IB and in the summer, and then in torpor, they might be more farther apart and that might contribute or at least play a part in them slowing down the mitochondria.
0: So then how would you study something like this? Is, so you said you're part of a lab, is is there like a laboratory uh, component where you're in a coat and have like a pipette or something? (laughs)
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I I do wear a coat and have a pipette. And so I'm using a technique called uh, gel electrophoresis. And so what I do is I, we isolate mitochondria from a couple of different tissues that are involved. For example, the liver is highly involved in metabolism. So we take samples from the liver and also from the heart, because that is one of the first things to rewarm when the animal starts to to heat up again. So we take samples from that. We isolate the mitochondria by spinning the cells down until the, the mitochondria come out in the, in the supernatant. And then I run them on a gel. And so what happens there is that the proteins will separate according to molecular weight. So I can actually, see like on a on a slab of gel little bands will come out uh, referring to each one of the different proteins and how that pattern is on the gel will tell me what the proteins were doing in the animal and so if there are differences there then I'll be able to figure out what's happening uh, in in the whole body
1: so are you just able to take samples only during the winter or do you have a massive environment where you have the squirrels and you induce hibernation how does this work
2: yeah, so we can't actually induce hibernation because it is such, it's called a, a circannual annual cycle. So it happens like every year, uh, we can only really sample in January and February. So we'll do that then. And that's like the critical time for us. So I basically don't plan anything in my life in January and February. I'm just in the lab getting ready. As soon as the squirrel starts to arouse, we, we're in there and we, we take a sample. And then we'll also do it in the summer too. So coming up in June and July, uh, we'll be also taking some samples then to compare them with the ones in the winter. So
1: you take samples only twice a year right and you work with oh that's very interesting yeah, yeah so
2: never. They'll sample. So we have these uh, amazing body temperature transmitters that we'll implant in the squirrels. And that will allow us to track different changes in their body temperature. It'll take a, a reading every 10 minutes. So when the squirrel is in torpor, we'll see a, a flat line. And then once, as soon as they start to arouse, we'll see that on the computer. And then we'll quickly get ready, put a sandwich in the bag, and then go into the lab. And then once they, they reach a stable, warm body temperature, then we, we can take a sample in that, at that time then, too. So yes, if COVID delays us, then we might Miss the sampling time and so it's it's very critical that we we sample them then and we sample it in the summer
0: wow
1: and how That's do you really make good. sure that once you take the sample the cell remains in that state because i'm wondering if once you take it you introduce a change that will like have any effect on the mitochondria so you won't get the actual picture of
2: what you want to see Yes, yeah, that's a great question. So what we do is we snap freeze them. And so as soon as we isolate the mitochondria, we snap freeze them in liquid nitrogen, which is freezing, freezing cold. And then we store them at minus 80 degrees. And that will just uh, stop everything. And then when we use them uh, for different assays or when I run them on the gels, then they should be still in the state that they were when we, when we measured it. The other way I can make sure that it's actually true to what's happening physiologically is that I treat all the samples the same. And if there are still differences after that, then I know that those differences were because of how the animal was when the sample was taken, not from the experimental procedure.
0: Okay, so then have you found any differences um, between your different samples here?
2: Yes. So, so far I I have. I have some preliminary results. So I was talking a little bit about the super complexes and how the proteins interact with one another. And what I found is that there are actually different types of super complexes. So there are five different proteins that I'm interested in complex one, two, three, four, and five. And there's this one larger super complex made of complex one, three, and four that exists in the mitochondria. And then there's a smaller one made of just three and four. And so I found that in torpor, there is more abundant three and four than there is one, three, and four. And so I'm finding that there's actually kind of a dynamic shift going on with the proteins. And so in one state, uh, there's increased uh, amounts of one complex. And then in torpor, there's an increased amount of others. And so I'm not exactly sure the relevance of that yet, but I know that there is a difference there. And so that that's encouraging to see that too.
0: Well. D- Do you know what what these complexes do? Uh,
2: Yeah, so it's thought that they they increase the efficiency of ATP production. And so when there's more complexes, you get more ATP. Uh, It's also true that when there's more complexes formed, you get less reactive oxygen species forming. And so it kind of protects the cell from damage from that. Uh, And then it's also thought just to like help the stability of individual complexes because they're made up of lots of little parts. So when they're all close together, uh, they stay together. They don't break apart and and get, I don't know, get get denatured in that way. So they're useful, but really that's all we know so far. So people have just only recently started uh, figuring out that these complexes interact with one another and that they might have have uses for, for energy production.
1: So I'm wondering, have you wondered, or do you ever want to go deeper into like, for example, the brain? Because being this one of the organs that consumes the more more, more energy, I wonder if they have different complexes or how do they go into these hibernation periods if they are anyhow different? Because I, I do imagine that what you mentioned before about like, they going going into hibernation, they will like have to do these cycles and i will imagine that that's very closely linked to the brain because i don't know like that that was my first thought i don't even know if this is accurate but uh, i am wondering if you also take samples from the brains or these yeah. will be too like too risky for the squirrels.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, well, yes, that is true. It, it wouldn't be, <laughs> be great for them, but we have taken samples from the brain before, and there are interesting things happening there. Uh, particularly, the hypothalamus is what controls body temperature, and so the idea is that uh, there's like a. a temperature set point in your brain. So for humans, it's 37 degrees Celsius. If our body gets warmer than that, then we'll start sweating and vasodilating. And if our body gets colder than that, we'll start shivering. So our body wants to be at 37, it's set to that, that temperature. But then in the squirrels, when they're torpid, that temperature set point gets changed. So it's like the thermostat is turned down to four degrees. And so that is the new uh, set point in the temperature. And that's all related to the brain. But how that change is regulated and and what what changes in the body to trigger that isn't actually known. And so my my supervisor, Jim, likes to say that uh, if, if we knew or if we figured out how hibernation works or what triggers it, then we'd have the Nobel Prize. And so it's an interesting question that, that no one knows yet. And so I haven't specifically looked at super complexes in the brain yet. I'm looking at uh, brown adipose tissue. So brown fat, which helps with rewarming the heart and the liver. And so I'm seeing kind of similar patterns in all three of those tissues. So I would expect that it would be the same too in, in the brain.
0: Wow. No, I mean, it. the point you made about um, what the sort of possibilities might be if we could understand the hibernation process and perhaps how to control it to a degree is really fascinating. And um, I mean, I wonder if, if you have any speculations, like what what do you think we might be able to do with that kind of knowledge? Or um, what do you hope that we might be able to one day be able to do?
2: Oh, well, there, there's a lot of possibilities. So there are a lot of things that, that change in the squirrel's bodies. Uh, these other researchers are looking at blood clotting because they know that when the squirrels are, are torpid, their heart rates is ridiculously low compared to what it is in the summer, but their blood doesn't clot. It just it just slows down even though it's not traveling around the body. So that is like a huge application for, for humans because blood clots are a problem for us and they don't really seem to have that. The other one is reactive oxygen species you might have heard of people taking like uh, antioxidants in food like that that's a huge market for that and so if the squirrels are, are increasing their antioxidant capacity or if there are changes in that that might be relevant for humans too i don't expect that anyone is going to induce humans to hibernate i i don't really know if that would be possible our bodies just aren't aren't really made for that but there are a lot of other human related applications too Uh, For super complexes specifically, it's all related to metabolism. And so sometimes uh, like any metabolic related disease or even obesity is all linked to that. And so if we can understand more about the complexes, then we might not know more about how human exercise works, how human fat gain is, is related to that too. So it all comes in just not just one little step at a time. Oh. Yeah, it's just
1: like it's very interesting to dream about what could happen, and if we have the same complex as in ourselves, it will mm-hmm. be super cool to know if eventually, for example, for me, winter is really hard. yes <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> I think I wish I could just hibernate and go through
2: this. <laughs> yes, yeah, it, it does sound enticing. Like just sleep away the winter and then wake up when it's warmer. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, I'm. Not, I now know that they are not actually sleeping, right? Like is mm-hmm. a different process, sleeping than hibernating, right? So uh, we think about it as sleeping, but it's not actually sleeping, right? Yes,
2: no, it is not sleeping at all, so they have their, their whole body, like when we sleep, our bodies stay the same temperature, and our brains are still active, we dream, we can wake up right away, but for the squirrels, their, their brain activity is reduced, everything is reduced, and it takes them actually like, uh, over half an hour to get warm again. And so if we if we pick up a, a torpid squirrel and handle it and bring it into the warm, uh, it'll very slowly start to move and then it'll raise its body temperature a little more and then it'll start shivering like crazy and then finally after it's after that amount of time then it will start to run away. And it's, it's also very stressful for them. So they start uh, the beginning of hibernation uh, being very fat and healthy looking. And then by the end of it, they're quite skinny and very thin and they have to eat a lot of food to make up that lost weight. And so it's, yeah, it's, it sounds nice for us just sleeping in a way, but, it, but for them it is very stressful. And some of them don't make it even in the wild. It's, it's something they, they have to survive. They have to be fit to, to make it through.
1: So, do you think that climate change will like affect the way? Because like now we have longer summers, and for example, here in Canada we just had a very like some very cold days, and I was really worried about the squirrels. I was like, they were, are waking up and they are finding this awful weather weather, and that's not cool. So, I'm yeah. wondering if do you think climate change will have any impact on
2: on their periods of hibernation? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I bet that it will. And so because this is such an ingrained process, it's, it's not uh, something that the squirrels can control. If the, the timing of Winter hits earlier or maybe lasts longer than it is. Uh, they can't control that, so they're going to wake up in March no matter what is doing what it's doing outside. And so, if they wake up and it's still freezing, uh, then they're going to have to they're going to struggle because they need to start eating food right away. And if they can't find that, then yeah, they're they're definitely going to be at, be at risk. So it could be a matter of them moving to a different location. Uh, that's better for them. This particular species lives all the way across uh, the central North America, so you can even find them in Texas and up to Manitoba, and so they do have a wide range. I think that they, that would give them some wiggle room for survival. They're not very restricted to a certain area, but yeah, their climate change has consequences for everything, and I expect it would for, for grounds for us too.
0: That's quite interesting though um, that they extend all the way down into Texas because Uh, I mean, other than this past winter, um, I I, at least I haven't really heard of uh, Texas winters being all that bad. Do do they show the same sort of hibernation behavior or is it shorter or or something different?
2: I have a big smile on my face because that is actually uh, one of the questions that I'm most interested in doing a PhD about. And oh. so we, we don't know what the squirrels do in, in Texas. Do they hibernate in the same way? Because we, kn- we know what they do in Manitoba when it gets freezing cold. They, they do they do torpor, they do IB. It starts in, Mar- in uh, October and then ends in March. But what do they do in Texas? Because like the, the ones in Manitoba have to do it, right? They do it no matter what. But what about the, the ones in Texas? Do they have to do it? They're the exact same species. They have the same same DNA, maybe? I don't know. So that's, that's what I'm going to look at, hopefully, mm. for my PhD. It would be a big project, uh, but it would answer a lot of interesting questions.
0: Okay, so you are thinking about continuing on um, into a PhD and, and possibly to study these same little ground squirrels.
2: Yes, yeah, definitely. I am definitely hooked by academia and I I want to keep going. I can't imagine doing anything else. (laughs) Wow.
0: Well, I guess looking back from that then, um, how did you find yourself in a position to become so, um, I guess, enchanted by the 13 line ground squirrel?
2: Yeah, I think it was more nature in general for me. So I was definitely the kid who was like rescuing worms off the sidewalk in the rain, like making sure they're all fine. I would bring caterpillars into my room and, and raise them. And so when I started uh, looking at, at the biology department, there were so many interesting labs and this was just the one that caught my eye. So it wasn't as if I've been obsessed with squirrels for my whole life, but it's just animals in general. So uh, I really like them now and, and they're they're pretty cool. So. I guess that's how I ended up here where I am, (laughs) a love of nature and of science, being very curious. That's
1: excellent. So you did mention before that COVID has impacted your research this year. So have you any plans for compensating that or you will just extend that into your PhD or how's that going to work?
2: Yeah. So since our, our sampling is so regulated that because of the shutdowns last year, we missed out on summer sampling season. And so I've had to push my master's a, a couple months extra. So I'll be able to sample this summer instead of the, the summer I missed last year. And then I'll be back on track after that. So just a couple months. Uh, but I'm, I'm thankful that our labs have all the protocols and everything to, to continue the research in a safe way now. So it's, it's good to be back in the lab.
1: So when is your next sampling? Are you sampling anytime soon? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, we'll be starting in June. So we've got to catch a few more squirrels, and then then we'll we'll do it again in June, and then a lot of lab work after that.
0: So you catch your, the squirrels in sort of late spring, early summer. Is that right? Yes. Would, yeah. would it not <laughs> would it not be easier to just you know pick them up when they're hibernating, like? You were saying they don't really move or notice anybody at all, right?
2: Yes, you're right, but good luck finding them because they they burrow under the ground and then there'll be a couple of feet of snow above them so it would be rather impossible to do it. Yeah, so we go in the spring and then we, it's actually really fun to catch them. We drive a, a pickup truck and we, we scan the ground for a squirrel and then we see one's head pop up and then we'll get out and chase it and then find the hole where it is and then and catch it that way. So we like to catch them in the spring because they're, they're most active during that time and they might be pregnant as well. And so then we get like six squirrels for the price of one. And so it's it's a good time.
1: <laughs> so how, how long do they live? How usually long is their yeah.
2: life? Yeah, so in the wild, I think they live uh, two to three years, maybe three or four. Uh, right now, we have a, a matriarch squirrel in the lab. She was caught in two thousand and seventeen, and is still going strong now. And so, I'm as far as I know, she's one of the oldest squirrels uh, that that we know of. So that's like a long time, but we so we're not sure. We're hoping we're, she's going to live forever, but <laughs> we'll see.
0: <laughs> oh, cool, mm-hmm. and. We've been talking a lot about your work as, as a scientist, as a student. Um, is there anything you do outside of the lab? Um, I guess not in January and February or when you're out catching squirrels, but what's, uh, w- are there large parts of your life that don't involve uh, being a biologist?
2: Uh, yes. Well, <laughs> my favorite thing to do right now is definitely birding. I have been, I've recently, actually, I think around this time last year when there was nothing else to do, we went outside. And so I've been obsessed with birds and, and filling my life list and, and checking them out. But that is a rather biology thing to do. Uh, I have, so I guess that is the majority of my life is, is related to nature and biology. But I love reading. I like uh, crafting. I like to paint. I paint wildlife. So, oh, there's another thing. But yeah, (laughs) there you go. So very
0: much a lifelong fascination with nature.
2: Yes, absolutely. Oh, great.
0: Well, Emily Hutchinson, thank you very much for being with us today and telling us about hibernation, about ground squirrels, and just about how wondrous the beauty of nature really is.
2: Thank you so much. It's been
0: amazing. And all the best in your future PhD studies.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: All right, you've been listening to GradCast. We are a production of the Society of Graduate Students here at the University of Western Ontario. My name is Yemin Chen, I was on your host today, and my co-host and producer today was Laura Baena. GradCast airs every week on the radio at Radio Western, CHRW 94.9. Uh, you can also subscribe to us on Apple iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Play, or wherever you get your fine podcasts. Some episodes are also uploaded to our YouTube channel, so check that out. And if you'd like to be a guest on our show or to join the production committee, you can drop us a line at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening
1: and have a great day.